0: بسم الله الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وعلى... طيب. بسم الله. So we will continue on in our study of this text. The Arabic states: بقولها <laughs> تَأْكُلْ الْحَرَامِ تَابِعُ إِذَا So this translates as, the first of things is the nursery period. Because his family with him are entrusted, it is desirable that the suckling of every child should be from one righteous in her words and deeds, who eats from the permitted and not the illicit, for they have said... One's habits will reflect what one eats. If the suckling is filthy, he inclined towards filthy actions, firstly and lastly. So we will first begin with these lines, and then inshallah ta'ala, let's see if we can cover more in this session, Bismillah. Uh, we're on page 31. So the first line states... وَأَوَّلِ هِيَ الْحَضَانَةِ لَإِنِّهُمَّ أَمَانَةً There's two things here, this word حضانة and then this word amana And linguistically حضانة, حضانة It means to embrace or to hug. The hidden of a woman in particular is this front region. And it's the place that is going to touch when you hug someone. And that you, would actually, you could say something like that I grew up in her hidden. In other words, is that, that I grew up under with her taking care of me, with her nurturing me. And the, the time of Halana is the time before that from the child is born until the child reaches the sinnet tamiz, the age of discrimination. And I believe that we have mentioned that term before. And it's an important stage that we all understand uh, of a child's development. And at least in the Shafi School, the scholars don't tend to give a specific age. Rather, they give a, a general criterion that when the child fits that criterion, they're considered to be that, uh, at the age of discrimination. And they have different um, descriptions, but one of the more useful is is that they're able to eat alone and to drink alone and to that clean themselves alone uh, when they use the restroom. And so it could be as early as age 5. It also could be around age 6 for some people. might not be until 7. Um, but it's roughly around that period, and then it's when you see those signs, is that there are different that now legal rulings that apply to them but in general this first period is called the period of halana and it is characterized by <clears throat> the the very word itself it's it's an age where yeah. that we actually are physically embracing our children more and um spending much more time with them they're that much more attached to the parents and then after is that they, they will grow and then further grow. Um, so this is the period of Hadana. And then what he says here is that his family with him are entrusted. And so amana. this child, uh, male or female, is an amana. It is a trust that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the family, in particular the parents. This is the way that we should view that our own children, even though we were their means for them to come into this earth, uh, however, is that their trust and ultimately everything belongs to Allah. did wa inna raji'un. Did we all belong to Allah and unto Him we will return. Um, Allah is our owner and He is our master, subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that it is an obligation upon the parents to care for and to take care of the child, and to look after the child, and that not only physically, that's a given, every parent, for the most part, does that, but also in relation to the religion, and that he will then transfer, transfer after this uh, uh, initial discussion, he's going to transfer into the discu- discussion of that what is called as Irla, which is suckling, nursing the children. Uh, which is something that that obviously is done from the child time that the child is born, um, and that the point here really is is that um, while we are th- taking care of all of their physical needs, and th- this is something that we have to do, we're also very aware of their spiritual needs, and that the those who are responsible for raising children. And this is first and foremost the responsibility of the parents. Is that they're required to have certain traits. There's certain traits that need to be in them in order to do this properly. And um, that a few of the ones that he mentions here are like trustworthiness and honor and the ability to look after this trust, i.e., the child, with gentleness and mercy. Um, and so that it really requires a realization on, on the side of the parent, is that we, we realize how important this really is, and that we give because that we did this by choice, and so that it really, that should weigh very heavily on ourselves, is that, that these children, as we have taken before, are like a clean slate, and depending upon what we expose them to and how we raise them, uh, we'll... That determine much of their outcome at a later time, and so that it's really that worth. We, it's really important that we spend the time thinking about this trust and planning for it, and that doing what it is that we need to do to acquire the necessary knowledge to that fulfill uh, the the responsibility that's been placed upon our shoulder, and to to do so that it, with, with ihsan, ideally. And this also uh, relates to other people that we expose our children to. Um, ideally, that we want them to be people of traits. We want them to be people who that have certain virtues in themselves. And so, it, it is not a good idea for us just to that anyone and everyone to just okay here take care of my child. Uh, it's important that we look for the best of the op- best of the possible that opportunities in relation to that. And um, sometimes by need and necessity is is that we have to choose certain people because none others are available. But this is something that that we should consider. So then he says, It is desirable that the suckling of every child should be from one righteous in her words and deeds. And this was very common in the pre-modern world still, in, in many Muslim countries, uh, this is the case, where that there will be people who help nurse the child when they're young. It's much less common now. Um, there are again a number of ahkam legal rulings in the sacred law um, that when that a child is nursed, and that in some schools it's as, as it's sufficient to have just one nursing. Uh, one time, nursing one time, and even the smallest amount uh, of the mother's milk reaching uh, the child's stomach is sufficient, and others, as there has to be a certain number, like five times that it was done in order for that child to be the foster child for that woman. Um, but this is something that, that we should also consider, um, and that... Um, that we should choose the most righteous of people that to do this, if this is indeed something that we are considering. And even though it does seem a little bit odd in our context here uh, to do this, but sometimes uh, this is done even for the blessing of it. If you know that there is a pious person uh, who also has children uh, that um, can... Um, that you, you want to do this for tabarruk, they do do this. And that they mention about the great Imam al-Hasan al-Basri, who generally is considered to be the greatest of the Tabi'een. He actually grew up in the house of Umm Salama. And Umm Salama was one of the wives of the Prophet And so the mother of al-Hasan al-Basri was a servant of Umm Salama. And when al-Hasan al-Basri was young, and she had to go somewhere. She would oftentimes leave Al-Hassan al-Basri in the care of Um Salama. And Um Salama that would uh, that uh, nurse him or at, at, at times. And that they used to say is that the blessing of Al-Hassan al-Basri came from uh, those times that he was nursed by Um Salama uh, when he was very, very young. And so um, that this is an example of the great blessing that could potentially that come from that. And so Hassan al-Basri grew up in one of the, the chambers of the Prophet and was exposed to someone like Um Salama from the earliest period. Now, and then that part of this as well is that not only uh, do we look for someone of virtue in relation to their religion, uh, but there also is an understanding um, that what someone eats affects. That obviously, because if someone eats something, it's going to be that in their bloodstream, it's going to be in the source of milk that they are then giving the child. It will definitely affect the child. And that not only should be, she should be righteous in her words and deeds, but also who eats from the permitted and not the illicit. Okay, not that which is haram. And so eating halal food, there's not going to be any blessing or barakah uh, in milk which originates in the forbidden, and that it will actually dramatically impact the child uh, if the mother or the foster mother who is nursing the child uh, is not eating what is permissible. Uh, Because it will affect that child negatively by virtue of that what is mixed uh, in her milk, and um that uh, uh and so this this is very, very important, and for those that that were present at the uh, Hakim's weekend parenting class is that this is one of the things that was touched upon the importance of food, and um it is very important, and oftentimes we don't associate that with raising children, but this is a major mistake because that when there's that intimate of a connection with the child is that then that one has to be very, very careful about what they put in their system because it ends up in the child's system. And Sheikh Abdullah Basudan, he used to mention, he mentioned uh, a saying uh, that was, was common in Hadar Maut that says, كُلْ shit Eat whatever you want because that you will act accordingly. And then that مَنْ فمثله تكون. Take the companionship of whoever you like Because you will be like them um, So take the companionship of whoever you want But there's consequences You will be like them So كل ما فمثله تَعْمَلُ وصحاب فمثله تكون. And, and so the importance of both food and companionship Mashallah. And then he goes on to explain this, that, that if the nursing is that filthy, is the word that is used here in the Arabic, is that khaboth, a khabith, is that um, not pure. That according to fiqh, khabith, according to a Manawi, means reprehensible, violent, contemptible, encompasses sensory and intellectual. We could look at it in the sense of someone's own self also. Is that being khabith, we are the billah. As that there are people that are just lowly. Um, but um, the, the meaning over here is, is that, that it's pointing to this connection between what it is that we eat and the actual nursing that takes place of the child. And then he gives us this very useful quote by Rousseau. And that he says here, the ideas expressed in this section are common to most traditional cultures. And the quote states, The nurse must be healthy alike in dispi- disposition and in body. The violence of the passions as well as the humor spoil her milk. So here, he's not even speaking solely about the food. He's speaking also about the uh, nature of the, the woman nursing. And that how balanced she is in relation to her passions that what are, uh, how balanced she is in relation to her humors The milk may be good and the nurse bad A good character is as good as constitution So essentially he speaks here about constitution That's one aspect of it Which is your physical constitution um, But that the character, he says, is just as important If you choose a vicious person I do not say her foster child will acquire her vices But he will suffer for them Ought she not to bestow on him day by day, along with her milk, a care which calls for zeal, patience, gentleness, and cleanliness? If she is intemperate and greedy, her milk will soon be spoilt. If she is careless and hasty, what will become of a poor little wretch left to her mercy, and unable to protect himself of complaint? That's a very harsh way of putting it. The wicked are never good for anything. Well, that's also pretty harsh, but I think the point (laughs) is made is that, um, that we have to be careful about who well, we expose our children to. It's very, very important. And then he that does raise this issue of that Muslims living in non-Muslim countries, um, that we're going to have to make certain decisions in relation to our children, and how much we let them interact or to not interact, and that... It really is not as simple, and he points us out, that he actually had a Jewish neighbor who he felt more comfortable with that his children going to that house than going to many Muslim homes um, because of the way they were with children, because of how that scrupulous they were with dietary matters, and that... This is something we need to consider. It's a, we, we get this we do have this sense in the community sometimes that, oh, they're Muslim, it's okay. Which is not necessarily the case. And again, what we mean here is two things, because when you open up this conversation, people will then say, What well, a second, I thought we're supposed to have husnaldan, we're supposed to have a good opinion of people and so forth. But I think what's important here is that we put everything in its proper place. You have to have husnaldan. You have to have a good opinion of everybody. But there's a difference between having a good opinion of someone and that making an informed decision about what to do in a particular circumstance. Um, We have to have a good opinion of everybody. But it doesn't mean that, say for instance, that your intuition is telling you that the person that you're dealing with is not fully balanced. That you just say, oh no, I'm going to have a good opinion of them and that act contrary to my gut feeling of this matter. Or you actually notice something. And this is of general application, that if you that are in a particular place and you feel a sense of danger, that you feel that someone could cause you harm, you need to take necessary precautions. It's not a time where you just say, oh, I'm going to have a good opinion of everybody. And so the Ulama actually mentioned in relation to mu'amalat, uh, our dealings, is that actually having a bad opinion is what is required. And what that means is not that you actually sit and have a bad opinion about the person. You base your interactions off of that. In other words, even with friends, if they borrow money for you, still it's recommended to write it down, even if they're friends. And you might say, oh, I know they're going to pay me back. But that's not the point. Those interactions are based on su'ablan, even though they're friends. Again, what is meant by based on su'ablan Is that you don't expect them to pay it back You write it down And um, this is very, very important And um, especially when it comes to books The worst people of all are your friends The worst people of all are your friends And um, uh, I used to have a little notebook Where anyone who took a book out of my library I wrote it down And your acquaintances tend to feel a little bit embarrassed, so they usually return them. But then you look back, and you actually are looking for a book, and you go back into where you wrote it down, and a book's been with someone for a year, or two years, or three years, and they probably forgot. Um, But that's in relation not only to books, but to other things as well, um, at times. Not that we shouldn't loan books or other things, however, um, you have to be very careful but books have their own special hookum. Anyhow, so this is what he is. He, he's, he wants us to really think about this. And again, really these types of things, it, it is very helpful to have a workshop element. So he has these really nice discussions where he poses these questions. He has a few quotes from uh, different people. And um, that these are really meant for discussion, not just a one-way monologue. Um, And so it it is very helpful for people either on their own or in small groups to look at this and in those small groups discuss some of the ideas, talk about what works best. Um, But one of the things that that I will say is that children are different and children respond to different circumstances in different ways. And especially in the early years, um, I am a proponent in general of, um, that really having that tarbiyah strong So that, that when the children start to see something else Is that they've already been well grounded In strong that Islamic tarbiyah Is it that you've had some very frank conversations with them Yes, about what to expect when they interact with other people and so forth But then when they're exposed Oftentimes, that they'll see the superiority of what they actually have been blessed with, and I've I've seen it in my own family with some of the interactions with uh, my sons in particular that they've had uh, with some of the people that on their team, and spending time with them outside off off of the court, but in their homes and in cars, and just you know them coming back and just like my goodness. Right, their dominant feeling was, like, what a blessing it is to have what we have as Muslims. And they just see certain traits in other Muslims that other people don't have. That, and that certain ways of being um, that, that, that is preserved in many Muslim families, and language choice, and things of this nature, where it doesn't mean that they're not able to interact with people. no, we have to be able to interact with people. But there's a different, big difference between being able to interact with people and that really finding a sense of intimacy with people that is probably not the best people for them to be around. Those are two very different things. And um, how we balance that will that differ from family to family and from child to child. And I think for the most part, um, we're in agreement in terms of what needs to be achieved, but then. That the way to achieve it could differ based upon the family. So the next thing that he speaks about in this period of halana, which again it begins from birth and extends to roughly the age of seven, uh, is about the food that we eat. And so he titles the next ses- section that early years in eating. And so he said the, so the text says, وبعدما يعظم تجده يشتهي أكل الطعام دائما لا ينتهي يُعَلِّمُهُ الأكل باليمين والبسمة حتما بكل هِينِ ولا يُبَادَ قبل أكل صاحبه ويأكل العيش للذي بجانبه وَيَمْدَغِ اللقمة مدغنه محكمة ولا يسرع يوالي اللقمة. This translates and after he has grown you will find him desiring to eat incessantly and unceasingly. Kids just love to eat And to eat and to eat And some adults do too One should teach him To eat with his right hand And say the Basmalah Dutifully every time And he should not eat Before his companion And he should eat the food Nearest to him And he should chew his food Completely And not hurry Or hasten for the next piece So that these manners It's not enough Just to tell your children To do them one time these manners is that it takes 5 10 15 maybe 20 years to inculcate them that in your children and what needs to be done is cons- consistently reminding them consistently reminding them consistently reminding them and so that the uh, first thing is that that he reminds us here of is that um, uh, that we, we teach our children to eat with their right hand. And even if they're left handed, it's very easy from an early age, if they get used to eating with their right hand, to, to eat with their right hand. And now, what's important too is that the parents themselves, first and foremost, exemplify these traits and have these etiquettes. Because if we don't do it, then how are our children going to do it? And that um, this is the sunnah of our Prophet is to eat with our right hand. Certain types of food that require that two hands to eat, um, it, it's fine to, to do so. And I've even seen my own teachers that when they're eating with their hand and they have food on their right hand to pass other food, it's fine to pass food in that instance actually with your left hand. Uh, if your hand is, let's say you've been eating rice, you have food on your hand. And if you would pick up something and pass it to someone, your food would get on that item that you're passing. I've seen my teachers pass it with their left hand in that instance, whereas normally you do so with your right hand. Um, when it comes to, let's say, someone wants to take a sip of water uh, while their right hand is dirty, because this is assuming that someone's eating with their, with their hands um, and, and, and not a fork or a spoon, is that then it's fine to grab the cup with the left hand and you just put your right hand on the bottom and do it as such. So you still get the blessing of, drinking with the right hand. But in general, uh, this is one of the first etiquettes that we want to encourage, is that to eat with the right hand. And really, um, there isn't a a direct association between food and etiquette. The very word for adab comes from a word, ma'adubah, which is a buffet. It's a table spread of food. And so one of the main and most important places that we can inculcate adab in our children is at the dinner table. And this is unfortunately something that is that vanishing in the modern world when the husbands and the wives schedule are very busy and people are coming in and out and that how often do we actually sit down and have a family dinner? Is that we have to resist that the temptation of ease and that the children have to resent the temptation of just waiting for a parent to come home and wanting to eat and not wanting to postpone it for 30 minutes while the father or mother is coming home from work. It's really, really important that we all eat together as much as we can that at the dinner table, and then when we come to the dinner table, um, that one of the first advocates even before we actually start eating and um, he doesn't mention this here Uh, there's actually an entire book on the etiquettes of eating which I highly recommend everybody uh, acquires and reads it's the it's one of the 40 volumes of the Ihya titled the book on the manners related to eating it's been translated into English Um, very important book And and you'd be you'd be shocked at how many etiquettes there actually are and You'd be shocked how that as mundane as act as eating can turn into an amazing act of worship by the by doing these various etiquettes subhanallah, and it is very important because this is one of the most important aspects of the spiritual path. Even is getting a hold on how it is that we eat, and what the etiquettes do is that they really differentiate us from that animals who, that also eat, but do so in a very different way. This is what's going to differentiate us in, 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 in all of these, these blessed etiquettes. And if you actually sit down to number them, is that you can number quite a few etiquettes. There's a lot, actually, that you can come up with. And so that when food is served one of the things that tends to happen is whoever's serving the food uh, is that they might even be at the dinner table yet. And all of a sudden, the kids, and sometimes the parents, are eating. Right? And sometimes you'll have some okay, eat while it's hot and so forth. In certain situations, maybe. Uh, but it's better to let mom or to let dad, if he's cooking, sit down. And everyone sit down. You all say the dua together of that eating. And then the oldest person that, at the table or the most respectable person at the table begins. So if it's the parents with the kids, one of the two parents begins, and then after that everyone else can begin. This is really important. It's teaching us just adab, even in terms of starting the process of eating. And then that when we eat, we eat with our right hand. And, that, and to say the basmala dutifully every time. And what is meant here by every time is every time that we eat. Uh, There are some who, out of their scrupulousness, wanted to say bismillah every time they ate a morsel of food. But in general, the Sunnah is to begin with bismillah at the beginning of a meal. And um, there are very serious repercussions that that happen in the unseen realm. And there's a protection from the source of evil shaitan just by saying those blessed words bismillah. And that you can also include in that the blessed du'a, one of the, there's different du'as of our Prophet um, that that's actually the one that you say at the end, um, that, uh, uh, that saying there's multiple narrations of supplications that we say in the beginning, uh, before it is that we eat. And then as we're eating, is that the sunnah of our Prophet is to um, have a moderate amount of conversation. So you're not just silent, okay, nor are you just overly talkative. You are somewhere in between. And um, uh, that uh, uh, then, and he should not eat before his companion. So if a child is eating with another child, we should, we should, like if a child has someone over at the house, that we should instruct the child. Okay, if you're all going to eat, make sure your friend starts to eat first, and then you eat after them. Make sure you serve your friend first, and then you eat after them. Um, or, as is the case sometimes, that if our children have other children over playing with them, is that it's their house, so they might go and just grab a, you know, something out of the uh, pantry. But we should tell our children, look, you shouldn't eat in front of other people. If that you want to eat, then make sure you at least offer your friends something first. And then you eat after. And, um, you know, these things are so standard in Muslim cultures, they don't even need to, for the most part, they don't even need to learn them formally. Uh, But as we kind of lose that here, we need to remind ourselves of it. Um, Whereas in many many households in this country of of non-Muslims, these things are not standard at all. And converts actually have to learn them, um, even though they, they know something's kind of wrong. But um, if I would tell you stories that I've witnessed my own self, that uh, many of you would actually not even believe me. Um, and and uh, you know I think that the the worst one really is is that when you actually would go to a friend's house during dinner time. And I remember occasions I had this friend that I went to his house during dinner time. And they made me stay in another room. And that it was dinner time. They they wouldn't let me go into the room where the family was having dinner. And not only did they not send me a plate of food, they didn't even send me a sip of water. And we're wondering, like, what are you doing here during this time? You could just wait. And then they finished their meal. And then he came out and whatever, we went. But, like... A Muslim family—it's like that's impossible. That's like <laughs> like most Muslims that I tell that to, that like grew up in a church household, like my God, that's almost like it's like you know, from the Kaba'ir. Like like no one would ever like that wouldn't even cross anyone's mind in, in any traditional Muslim family to uh, treat a, a guest like that. On the contrary, that it, they would invite them in and let them eat with them and so forth, of course, and they'd force them to eat. Uh, you know, much more than they actually even wanted to. Anyhow, that, um, that beginning with Bismillah. And then the sunnah is, if we forget to say Bismillah at first, you teach your children, what do you say? Then you say, Bismillah awwalahu wa akhirahu. And then that this becomes inculcated in them. But again, this requires consistency. This requires consistency over a period of five to ten years. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that this was something my mother, um, maybe not to teach bismillah, but my mother was adamant on table manners growing up. Like, adamant on certain table manners. And, um, you know, even waiting till everyone sat down, and, you know, not eating too quickly and then no one could get up from the dinner table. My sister always slouched, so she always would tell her, like, posture, you have to have good posture, um, which is not an explicit, et- explicit etiquette, but it's assumed that it also is a good etiquette to have post- good posture at the dinner table. Um, but, but it's important, even though when you're a teenager, kind of like, oh, mom, um, you, you're very thankful at a later time that you actually were taught table manners. Um, and little things like not chewing with your mouth open. I, my parents, when they were very strict on that, you ever, they ever saw one of us chewing with our mouth open, they would always instruct us to chew with your mouth closed and so forth. And um, little etiquettes like that, that you don't really realize how important they are until you see people who haven't had that upbringing and that are less refined in that sense in a good way. Uh, but eating the way someone eats tells us a lot about someone. It's one of the most important habits, and um, it really is an important criterion for a number of aspects, Uh, for someone considering a particular spouse, for someone considering that a a particular friend, there's a lot to be said uh, about how it is that we eat in our habits of of eating, then there's a lot you can tell about someone. Um, And then he should eat the food nearest to him. And so that people used to tend to eat together from one plate. And um, in that in sense that is that you're only supposed to eat what is near you. And um, still to this day in many places in the Muslim world, this is the way they eat. And so you're not supposed to hop over into the other side of the plate. right? You're only supposed to eat what is near you. And um, that even if there's a big juicy piece of meat on the other side, I remember uh, that in, in, in the days of when you're just a a hungry student and um, used to eating very bland food, that if the meat's on the other side, you better hope that person is going to give you a little piece. Otherwise, you got to stick to your side and suck it up. Um, And this is important that we at least sometimes teach our children how to eat like that, even if we normally eat on separate plates. Um, But then also, he should chew his food completely. So the sunnah is to take small bites, to eat with three fingers, these three or these four, and to take small bites. So to take small bites and to chew completely. Look at the adab we're taught. Because the nature of the nafs, what does it want to do? Is that food usually only has taste. It's not like the food of Jannah. Right? The food of Jannah is that every time you chew, is that it has a different taste. And so one item in jannah, every time you chew it, has a taste in the beginning, a taste in the a taste in the end. And so the food of paradise is very different; um, it it maintains its taste throughout the, the chewing process. But in the dunya, is that after about four or five or six right, that it chews, is that the food loses its taste, and so the nafs wants to quickly swallow so that it can taste again. But it's not healthy for you, one, and it's bad adab, too, religiously, to just swallow quickly and then to eat more. The sunnah is to keep chewing. and um, uh, Roughly, depending upon the type of food, um, it's around 21 chews. And you'll find most of us will probably stop at about 10 or 11 and they want to swallow. And so you have to actually consciously have to chew more, And then at around 21, if it's a tougher food or if it's meat, maybe a little bit more. If it's another type of food that dissolves quicker, maybe a little bit less. But you'll find is that those last chews, there's not much taste. But then it's at that point then that the food pretty much fully dissolves That If you swallow, then you'll find it actually is uh, much better for you. Um, And so we should encourage our children to take small bites and to chew the food completely and then along with that the idea of that not hurrying or hastening for the next piece. So again that the tendency is to right eat and to get more and to get more or as we oftentimes see our children do with food still in the mouth right put something else in. Um, so these manners are they, they are really important and that when you drill the child children in these manners that from the time that they're young is that it becomes a part of who they are, um, and that that really that in every single thing that we do, there are adab, there are etiquettes. Everything that we do, um, and um, there's virtually nothing that we do or no one that we can interact with except that there are etiquettes that relate to it. Yeah. So he mentions uh, some of the other etiquettes here um, that uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's not sunnah to, that blow on the food, it's actually makru to do so if the food is too hot, uh, whether that be tea or whether it be that some type of food they were eating, the sunnah to let it cool down and to then start eating. Um, and I do think it is good for, at, for, at times to get our children used to um, eating on the floor. Even if we have a dinner, a dining table, uh, that at times that we get our children used to eating on the floor. So it's something that it is that they know how to do. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ that he used to not eat on a table. Uh, he would eat on the floor sallam. And um, it's good to get used to that. Um, there is a... Uh, there is a, there are more, there's more there and that, that you can access on page 38 and 39, and then he um, that poses these questions about how important are mealtimes to the process of a child's social and physical development, uh, what Western customs should we encourage our children to adopt. Um, I think this is really important, is that we really think about this, the importance of mealtime, and how we want to incorporate that into our daily and our weekly schedule uh, at the level of the family and we consider that a very important part of um, our child's development um, and then also just about uh, Western customs um, there are very good customs that in the societies in which we live but oftentimes sifting those out from the others is not an easy process um, it 's something that really requires a bit of thought, and one of the things I, I really appreciate about um, that hakim Salim Khan 's approach to uh, parenting was that he really wanted to make the parents work and it's oftentimes oftentimes we just want a simple approach where we just want all the answers for everything. but really, if we 're going to do this the way that it should be done it requires is that we be proactive in the process and that we um, really think very carefully about these things and to force ourselves to think about them, get input from our spouses and our friends and um, share best practice and um, a lot of good can come from that. Um, I think that's enough for us to take. Are there any uh, questions or any items that we should discuss?
1: How do know if the food we give the
0: children is enough or not? I mean, I would, I would say it, it really depends upon the child. And, you know, definitely is that, especially as children get older, they eat a lot. I mean, I look at my own boys, like, my goodness, we just had a big meal. And they're like, I'm hungry. Like, how could you be hungry? So they reach a certain age and they, they need more food. Um, but I, I think it's a, a judgment call um, when you see that they've had a reasonable amount of food, and they just want more and want more. I think um, when it reaches the point where, based upon our judgment, that we think that they're starting to stuff themselves, right? We're after like, oh, I can't move. I'm so full. Right? Obviously, that's too much. Um, and so I think that we have to just direct them to stop a little bit short. And um, it doesn't have to be an enormous amount. Uh, our teachers used to say, is that when well, you want to take two more bites, stop. You want to take two more bites, stop. Um, so, But again, um, food is something that is permissible. So you, we do these things very gently over you know, a longer period of time. Um, and and uh, uh, we slowly inculcate them in them. Uh, so I would say it really is a judgment call. And kind of just being aware of the situation and if we feel like it's getting to the point where okay that's a little bit much, is that we should, you know, gently remind them of uh you know the importance of balance in everything and there's no questions right now online, but I have two questions. Sure. Yeah, defi- definitely. Usually, the best way of, of implementing new techniques is to is just slowly introducing them. Um, that otherwise, it's not usually sustainable if we make too big of changes too quickly. Um, and and really, these matters are uh, ones that we have to do over a long period of time. You know, uh, to really become habits. And, and it's not really going to be a replacement for an old way of doing things until it actually becomes a habit. And so, um, um, you know, similar to the way that, you know, if you wanted to really start exercising, right, It's sometimes if you think in your mind like, okay, I'm supposed to exercise five days a week, th- 30 minutes a day, that's two and a half hours a week, ah, right, but if you just, okay, I'm going to take a five minute walk, 10 minute walk, I'm just going to just do something small. Just by doing something, it motivates you actually to do more. And so, a hundred percent gradually small increments is is the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say that you know you don't just throw all the etiquettes out. You know, you could just have. Um, it, it, and it. You, I, I highly recommend that book. And what I might think of you might think of doing is. Extracting the etiquettes into like developing a list from Yamagosaydi's book. Because, see, he, he includes whether we're um, eating with people or we're eating on our own, and there's etiquettes before we eat, when we eat, after we eat. I mean, it's probably going to be close to 50, if not more, etiquettes. And then a great idea would be is that like one every night that you discuss, or whenever it is that you get together for a family meal, just one etiquette you introduce. And the others, in the meantime, you just overlook. And then you just keep adding slowly. Right? And then you reinforce kind of as you go. And I've always found, like, when you do these things, is that kids actually really enjoy these things. When they kind of feel a part of something, and then, um, you know, there might be certain ways to uh, um, reinforce them by rewarding them when they do implement them and so forth. And, Sure, yeah.
1: He and maybe it's part of his temperament. He desires like constant attention, yeah. you know, and like constant engagement. And if he's not getting it, I notice he acts. Uh, he's either asking to watch something, or he's asking for like an un- unhealthy snack, or he's kind of like moping and complaining, wanting mm. to like you know just be kind of hang on me all the time. So um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I and I realize that you know this is something that doesn't just go away stay with someone for the rest of their life Mm. as they're an adult and, you know, kind of um, see it kind of can be related to like addictive behaviors too, right? We're just trying to fill in this void that's inside of you or this neediness, right? Mm. So, um, I guess my question is um, I I, I tend to be more like uh, I feel like firm with him you know, with these kinds of things, and I just don't know what's the balance, because I know, like, as a mom, I'm supposed to be merciful and, like, gentle with him, but him being at home with me, and me being the one that's with him most of the time, I do tend to be more, I don't know, just, just dis- disciplined, you know, mm.
0: or, like, balancing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And please, anyone else, uh, jump in. Um, I, I think definitely that different children have different needs, and um, <clears throat> some are more emotionally needy than others. Um, you know, I, I even see the difference in my own children. My My, my daughter is very much... Less so needy in that sense. She's always been a little bit more independent. Um, that one of my boys is more emotionally needy, um, and I, and I think it really it really is a balance. And I think um, there's definitely an appropriateness for parents not always giving in to the needs of children for training purposes. So even if it is slightly displeasant to them. Um, There are many parts of raising children that uh, some of the stances that we have to take, it's not going to be 100% pleasant. I mean, children don't necessarily enjoy at a later age chores and things like that either, but it's very good for them. Uh, Children don't necessarily uh, like a number of things, Uh, but there's a lot of things that are good for them, even though it's slightly distasteful. So I would say that the balance in my mind would be tailored to the specific child as long as it's not to the point where you feel like you're harming the child where it's going to leave like some type of scar as a result um, then I think that, that uh, you know finding that, that balance on, on uh, you know uh, what to cater to and kind of what to that uh, you know when to, to you know step back a little bit and even even with babies it's also the case, you know, because uh babies love to be held, but um, you know, it it's babies at, at an early age, yes, in general, the the more you hold them, the more that you touch them, the more. Um but um sometimes there's there's a balance that even has to be there, even with, with, with babies. Um so I I would that's what I would say is just trying to find that balance where as long as you, 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 you don't feel like... You know, kind of a short-term um, reaction is very different than, you know, kind of like a long-term scar. And obviously you don't want to do anything that would lead to a long-term scar. But n- short-term negative reactions aren't... Because something's is to them, is not necessarily, I wouldn't think, it would be um, bad or, or wrong. Sometimes it's, it's necessary. So... Um, that's what comes to my mind. I don't know if anyone else wants to to jump in.
2: I think it's common with boys because they when they're at home a lot because they're really um because it's hard for them to be in that situation, especially as they get older. Because my girls are less like that than my my son. Being at home being at home. Not
0: I have a
2: question. Um, or it's more about my about my kids. Um, so I have a three year old, soon to be four year old you know, in school. It's not a Muslim school, but there are a number of Muslim kids that go there. In, you know, the um, but he's really questioning the surrounding and his classmates. Um, and he keeps me on my toes. There's something about this. I'm not ready, I feel like I wasn't ready. Like I'm not ready at this age. I, I expected at maybe at five or six. Like for example, he said to me, "A couple weeks ago, like, Mama, how did, how did Allah create us if Allah doesn't have pants?" And so like he keeps him on. What I'm trying to say, he keeps him on. Like, I was four, three year old, and um, he goes around his classmates. He goes around the playground and he asks his classmates, like for example, Michael, are you Muslim? Jennifer, are you Muslim? Why not? Um, yeah. and then he'll come and tell me like Mama, for example, maybe at the meeting, I was racing with Michael, and Michael yelled at me. Michael can't yell at a Muslim. Like and we talk a lot about you know, we started thinking like, if he's been reading surahs like keep the rise of the cat, you know, so I you know, try to understand give give the explanation of that surah, but really if you can give me advice the questions are getting deeper, and I feel like, okay, I really need to prepare myself for, for deeper Aqidah questions, and deeper questions about the world we live in, because fortunately, like, no, we come here to we'll gossip, so they have one understanding of the world, but the decision that we made about taking them to a non-Muslim school, because, you know, I felt that um, the reality that we live in, we don't live in a Muslim society, and so I don't want to keep them in this Muslim bubble, but keep them in a very diverse setting. But I'm being questioned about, or he's questioning the world around him. His classmates eating halal and not halal. So if you have any advice or suggestions on, for me as a parent, have to prepare for these things, or,
0: or where to start, or right, um, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think the the important thing is is that. Um, to really encourage him to, to question, right? And to, to really engage him when he does ask those questions and to not, um, you know, sometimes it's a time factor. You know, we don't always have the amount of time that we would like to, to really, but, but I think to the extent possible that we can invest the time into really taking their questions, like, seriously. And really, kind of being there with him, and like reliving them with him, like, "Oh wow, that was amazing. Tell me a little bit more, and like asking other questions, like, "Wait, why did would you say that? What else happened? Who else is there and and um so the the questioning is actually I don't think a bad thing I think it's uh I think it's a good thing in general um and um that I would really like try to to get down to his level and to um, you, know, you know, really point to the fact that these are good questions. And s- actually, the, the children's questions are the most difficult questions. They're the, so even like aqidah-wise, some of them are like very difficult to answer those questions in a way that they're going to understand. Right? Um, because it's, it's they're not able to really understand um, like the real theological answer. And so finding a way to uh, answer it is sometimes hard. And, um, and I think sometimes it's okay just to say that I, I don't really know how to explain it, but, you know, let's look into this together, right? or something of that nature. Uh, but, but in general, I think, on the contrary, each um, individual question that arises is an opportunity to solidify something in the child. Right? Or that... Um, you know, and then ask, them, well, well, what did you respond? Like, when they said, what did you say after that? Or then, And, and through other questions to kind of guide them through uh, what it is that they, how, how it is that they should be, what it is that they should say. And I think the main thing is is not, you know, it's it's the word that you just use. it's channeling. And it's one of the beautiful things that Hakeem brought up in, in the parenting workshop was just um, the idea of not you know, killing the spirit of the child, like just channeling their spirit. Right? And um that that's all we can we can really do. And um again I you know, I've seen I've seen um that children go through public schools from the earliest stages and turn out very well. I've seen Muslims go through to the Islamic schools and turn out not so well. And so there's just there really is a lot of it really differs on the child's person it really depends on the child's personality. Um, in general, if a child has a weak personality and they're very influential, uh then I think you have to be a lot more careful than if they just have a very strong and assertive personality. Um, and um you know.
2: Anytime you leave the house with your
0: family you Always says Go back to And teach your child To say So we say That every night Like every day in the morning Like We drop off So back to mom And go Yeah inside. But Is there anything else As a protection as a I mean There's this beautiful Dua that someone Sent from Habib Mashur That um, Oh yeah I mean we do the work That There were double Deep in the morning That works Specifically But specifically this du'a is amazing, um, and uh, uh, it, it was sent out on one of these channels. You probably, you might have seen it already. Allah, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have like a specific name, and I don't even know where it's from. But it's an amazing du'a. O oh Allah, indeed that You have granted me, and then You name Your children, without any power from Me or any strength. Protect them through Your protection, without any strength or might from Me. O oh Allah, protect them from all distasteful things that will afflict them, any type of evil or harm, O Allah, protect them from all diseases and sicknesses, O Allah, that don't make my trial in them, O Allah, protect them from all fitnah, that outward of it and the inward of it, O Allah, make them from the righteous of your servants and those who memorize your book and from the best of people in relation to their deen and their worship and their character and from the most felicitous and successful in life, and most e- and have the easiest of lives, O oh Allah, that suffice them with your halal from your haram and through your bounty. That, and allow them to re- not need anyone else except you. As you've protected your book until the Day of Judgment, protect them from the shaitan al O oh Allah, bless them to be around good people and to have the traits of the righteous and to rely upon you, O oh, Most Powerful. O oh, that Jabbar, that O oh Lord, O oh Lord, r- remove from them all diseases of the heart and physical diseases, and that grant me through them the uh, furthest limit of my hopes, that through your power and your strength, And it goes on a little bit, um, that, O oh Allah, that, that bless me to receive that their righteousness towards me during my life, and bless me to become felicitous through their dua after I pass. So I can send this to you. Uh, This is an amazing dua because it's really comprehensive and um, like like that's it like summarizes that really what you want from children. So. I sent it to your Maqasid uh, email and you, if you want to share it with the sisters feel free to. Yeah, you can just yeah, just post it. There. There's no harakat but we can we can work on the harakat and then eventually a translation inshallah. Sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, again, I think these things are balanced. I think, um, um, generally speaking, when you know, if I, if I, whether a child is really young or even if we're older, um, you know, the, the vast majority. Of the discourse of, of my teachers is all to bring about instill hope and love of Allah and his messenger and um, That they do at times speak about hell and fear but Compared to the amount that they speak about the love of Allah and hoping in the mercy of Allah I mean, it's just a, a small fraction and um, I would say especially in our time is that we should really focus upon that love and hope and beauty. And um, sometimes we have to have those difficult conversations as well. You know, fear is a part of it. But I think that we we want those discussions to be in a context of, of rooting them in love of Allah and hope in His mercy. Um, and so I, I think that if you feel that it's a little bit much, maybe you just subtly direct her towards, um, you know, other things and thinking about other things. Uh, and that when you, they read the Qur'an is that they'll find, you know, stories of people, you know, that are, are get people getting punished and so forth. And, at, you know, at some point we have to that give them the maturity, teach them so that they have the maturity that they need to be able to come to terms the concept of eternal punishment uh, Because it's not A choice that we have To believe in it or not That's from Allah Jalla جل uh, But it's To me it's about How we do that And a good percentage Of the people that I know That were pushed away From the deen Were people that were Pushed away from This standpoint Of the focus being on Do's and don'ts And like fear And I think Um and in our situations especially in the west that it's it's not you know it it's not the best approach because it, it's it's there's a lot that we're dealing with that it, it we won't be able to withstand if 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 that really is the discourse so perhaps that you could suggest other um you know you could direct the conversation in a, in, a, in another direction and yeah if she asked me
1: what does it mean
0: mm well, if she asks what you mean. I think you can explain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean yeah.
2: that.
1: Like she always asks me very like like she said deep question and about <laughs> most of them about punishment.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And did you probe a little bit to kind of see why she's asking that? And is it? Something bad in the sense of. Uh.
2: Like punishment is something bad, and they went to like Jahanna. It's something so bad. Mm.
0: Mm. Like questioning why? Why does like, that even?
2: Like one, they are all what sink in the Dufa. Hmm. Um, but the animal, the
1: I have a book, uh, the story. Uh, yeah. mm
0: yeah, and I would scrutinize the books that you give to them to to see you know not all of the Islamic material out there is really suitable it's mm. it's about the story of right okay yeah 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 I think it, it's just we have to we have to really. Uh, be careful at what stage we expose our children to whatever is it that we are exposing them to um and um that uh you know coming to term with these realities is a part of our own spiritual growth and um it has to be in, done in the right way at the right time um and um, uh, that in, in general that these points of of belief at a younger age are, that um, taken, that generally, and then the details are learned over a period of time. All right, so I, I would I would uh, be you know, careful in terms of how quickly the details are gone into. I guess is the way I'd phrase it. Um, no, I think I think they can, but I, it's 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 how, um, you know, again, it just depends on how you're, they're exposed to it, right? Um, like, when I want my children to think of the Prophet Muhammad, the first thing I want them to think of is love. That they love him. And that's the first thing I want to think about, them to think about. When I want them to think about the Prophet who came before us, the first thing that I want to them to think about in relation to the prophets is that these were the greatest people who ever lived. These were the most devout people who ever lived. These are the people that had the greatest traits. So it's about how we present the prophets. And um, that sometimes, I think, in a lot of our Sunday schools, and a lot of our books, is that it's a very dry way of presenting the prophets. And... Um, That, you know, I've never really exposed my children to the Prophets like that. I've tried to expose them in a very different way, you know, to the Prophets. And, um, you know, for instance, if you expose your children to the shamal of the Prophet Muhammad his great character traits, is that then that's what they grow up knowing, and then they'll understand some of those instances where the Prophet was very firm ﷺ. And I think the same thing has to be done uh, in relation to the prophets that came before us, especially for children. I think this is a phenomenon that, again, maybe I'm going a bit on a limb saying this, is that this whole idea of um, specifically teaching children Qisas and Anbiya. The Qisas of the Anbiya for everybody. Like for everybody, they're not just for children. I mean, they're for the Prophet of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? And there's this idea that this is something we just do for children. And I think and I'm not saying you doing this. Yeah, but, yeah. but I think when it,
1: read Quran, yeah. for example, if the story comes, I want to explain it.
0: Right. So I, I want to be attached to the Quran. So right. Yeah, but again I would just be I would be there's a process, right? Like when we when we go about any process of learning is that you can't get into the details of Islamic calligraphy until, right? You know how to write the basics, right? So it's a process, and that process is that, like when I want my children to think about the Prophet Muhammad, in addition to love, I want them to think of rahmatan lil alamin, the mercy to all of the worlds, right? So there's certain things that you build first, that you focus on. And then you get into the details right after that. And I think it's a challenge because we don't have a lot of really good materials. You know, there's, there's increasingly more and more things. But um, th- this is always, this is the big problem. And then also when they, let alone when they get a little bit older. My goodness, what do you give? You want your son or daughter to be educated and well-read at age when they're a teenager. What do you give them to read? Right. like what do you give them to read? And you know, the, one of the better options out there is to really kind of you know, go into a, a well-trained mind type approach, where you at least get them reading that some of the classics and so forth. And but still, there's a, a lot that even comes with that that you have to be very careful with, and it, it it's it. I think that one of the more difficult things in this whole process is the overwhelming amount of time that parents need to spend to train their own selves and with their children in this process. Whereas much of that was there just by context traditionally. Right? Where, I mean, if you just... A classic example of just even the food component. Think about how much time that you have to expend... To actually, that get good food and resources, to actually get food, that's not food that shouldn't be consumed. Um, and again, this is not to blow it out of proportion. We have to do our best, um, but I personally think that uh, we should, when we present the prophets, is that we want to make sure that we present them in a certain way, right? And then. Um, uh slowly expose them to more and more more and more of those details and i and i don't think that's uh we're about about to finish so uh that uh yeah i th- i think that's that's you know the the most important thing to do
2: yeah. sure knowing the she asked me about the meaning of everything
0: mm-hmm. so mashallah you want her to memorize page 6 so, mashallah that's a very high aspiration I hope you're not pushing her too hard I
1: don't mashallah
0: she mm. loves it too much, too much okay um yeah I mean the, the meanings of the Quran take time to learn you'll spend 40 years and still be asking about the meanings of the Quran um so I, I think that um, this is where parental direction comes in. Um, that the, in, in general, that for children, memorization <coughs> comes first, and then that the understanding, once the memorization's in place, will unfold over a longer period of time. And 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 that even if someone's not a child, that if you know part of learning, it's de-emphasized in the West, but in traditional Islamic curriculums, memorization is still emphasized. And you can only... Like if I'm memorizing a hadith, it's very hard to memorize the hadith and focus upon the meanings and to think about these spiritual indications, allusions in the hadith at the same time. Right? You have to first memorize and then you have to that, move to an understanding of the linguistic meanings and then you have to move further to some of the other broader meanings And then you can get into like Spiritual illusions and things like that So it's, it's um, I, I think this is something where we just need to Indicate that memorization is the, is the first step And then we move from memorization to you know, I was just reading yesterday And yeah, it was amazing He was talking about the difference between Ma'ana um, and tafsir So the meaning of a word And then the tafsir of a word and so the ma'na is the, how to understand it in the Arabic language. And the tafsir or these broader meanings that open up where it's an inexhaustible ocean. That The ma'na, the linguistic meaning, is that fairly easy to figure out. We know what every word in the Qur'an means. Um, and then that when you open up the door for tafsir, then there's a lot of... of meanings that then unfold at that point. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> any other uh, uh, items of discussion? So sure. You suggest any books for... For uh, Yeah, for kids. Um, Yeah. Um, that uh, I would I um, would um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the 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 al-Tirmidhi is a re- well. I, I would say then, the Wasail al wusul is Shama al-Rasul by Sheikh Yusuf al-Nabahani, and then it is a detailed book. But you just then present, you know, you know what you can, you know, the, and you'd be surprised what they're able to to understand from it because it's. You know, the topics of the Shemal are easy to understand. The physical description of the Prophet Sassim, the, the description of his character, uh, it's filled with beautiful stories, and the Prophet's perfume, the items that he had, and things like this. The, this is really what we should root our children in, right? these types of things. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a really good book by, uh, especially for younger, um, by Islamic Text Society. Does anyone know the name of the book? 365
1: Days with, with the Prophet. Who wrote that? Um, I actually, don't know. Uh, your wife uh, told me about it. It's called 365 Days with the Prophet. Mm. And um, it's like
0: for kids, you know, a uh, big book. Yeah, and but there's a. An, sure. There's another one uh, at that at that time. Her her name was I. But you want Arabic or you want English again? Ah, uh, uh, okay. Um, oh, i was supposed to be repeating the questions. Um, yeah, I would start with um, you know so, uh, a, a a smaller book of serat just just to go through the basics. Like a book like Nur Yaqeen is, is uh, a, a good start. And um, um, and then there's a, a, a book. Um, th- that That's a good place to start. Um, unfortunately, I don't have my books in this. I can show you some of the other uh, Arabic suggestions. But um, there's a, a, a really sm- good book by Sheikh... Dr. Nuruddin Etar called Nafahat al Itriya. It might be hard to purchase here, but if you can find a PDF online, uh, that's a very, very good book that <coughs> summarizes the life of the Prophet وسلم, and his Shama'il and even some of his marjizat. It's a very, very good book. And then the book of Sheikh Abdul Sirajuddin is one of the best of all, Sayyidina the Muhammad Rasulullah.
1: I think you could answer this very quickly. Sure. One of the sisters was asking, is it okay to blow on baby's food when it's too hot? And if it's like a little baby, and you're going to feed a baby food, mm. and you want to blow mm. on it so that it's cool enough
0: for them to eat. Is it preferable that... It would seem to me similar? to be the same, just it's better to wait if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's possible to wait, no doubt it's better. Yeah. So the question was about um blowing food on baby's food. It would seem to me to be the same, that it's better to to just be patient and wait if possible.
1: And then if, if uh, can a parent eat the leftover food of their baby or should it be put thrown in a field or something like
0: that? Uh, like baby food? Or I'm like food that, that food that food like adult... That a baby or a toddler... Mm. Eats the baby. I'd say if, if, if it's like baby food that, for instance, um, is not going to be eaten by like an adult, and they don't find, if they find it difficult to, to swallow, then I would say that, yeah, it should be given to uh, an animal if possible, right? Or uh, someone, something, some other, something else that could eat it. Um, and then um, if it's adult food, then yeah, have to, if, uh, you know, that's, I actually know um, pious mothers who do that, who only take a little bit because they know that they're, Children are not going to finish everything and just finish their leftovers, which is an amazing thing, right, to not waste food, not wasting food is very important, but then again, in, in, you know, this is the good thing about having like chickens here locally, it doesn't go to waste, uh, whereas a lot of people used to have goats and chickens and animals, it would be very easy to, that give the leftovers away to animals that were there. Khairan Shana. Barakallahu